0: Daryl Heyman's going to lead us in our uh, scripture reading that's going to happen. You know, we were saying that each, each week we're going to have another person reading this same scripture in Isaiah, and Daryl's going to read it for us today. Their descendants will be known among nations, and their offspring among the peoples. And all who see them will acknowledge that there are a people the Lord has blessed I delight greatly in the Lord my soul rejoices in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels for as the soil makes the sprout come up and the garden causes seeds to grow So the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Amen. Today we're talking about a Rocky Balboa calling, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, when we're in Philadelphia, we love to see it when people can get knocked down but get back up, man. That's what Alan Iverson was all about, you know, that's what... Brian Dawkins actually was the one putting them down, I think, you know, for the birds. But we love it when we see people who are resilient, who can respond and bounce back after being beat around. The next three weeks in our Joseph series, what we're going to be talking about is giving time to God, hanging in there while he does his work. He's making for us a robe of righteousness, clothing us with garments of salvation. But sometimes it takes serious time and perseverance for that thing to work out. You remember a few weeks back we talked about how God is not, he's not a fast food cook. He's a gourmet chef. And whatever he's making, it takes time and it's going to be good, but you've got to hang in there, you know, and this is the way it works. You know, I, I learned this thing about my dad and uh, it took me a while to learn it as a kid but i realized that if he was like fixing something for me there were these moments when i had to just chill and be patient that i couldn't nag him about it you know like if my ball glove wasn't working and he was like tying it back together and making it work it was going to be better than ever it was going to be better i guarantee you like i guarantee you this thing was going to work so good you know after he got his engineering mind all over it it was going to be better than it was made originally but the truth is is he had this tell you know where he was focusing and it was like, he has, he has this thing where, like, he, he puts his tongue out between his lips when he's really concentrating. He does one of these numbers right here. He goes, and he, like, focuses in. And I started to learn, like, and now my family tells me that I do that. And I'm like, but um, the, the funny thing is, is when he gets on that spot, like, let him do his thing. You know, it's going to be good, but let him do his thing because the man's concentrating right now. And it's like if if I have a, a splinter in my foot as a kid, you know, I can't see the bottom of my foot. I can just see dad's face. And as soon as he gets that face going on, it doesn't matter what the pain is. Hang in there, buddy, because in the end, he'll get it figured out. But don't mess with it right now or this is going to get worse, you know. And uh, same thing, some guy at football practice, you know, if you're uh, hitting the pads or you're getting the the one-on-ones and you're getting drilled, if you're going to expand and if you're going to grow, you got to hang in there while the things are taking place. You know, you get knocked down, you get beat up, life kicks you around, all that stuff. But in order for God to do what it is that he's going to do in our lives, there has to be a measure of resilience and endurance in us that allows things to happen and still continues to trust God. Because God uses these moments in our lives to transform us. But we have to be patient and we have to trust Him. And that takes hard work sometimes. I know that for some of you right now that there's some real difficult things. I know that some of you have have labored for a long time in your jobs and and then you just lost your job. And I know there's a number of people in our church who have gone through that recently. And that's a difficult thing to endure. Some in our church right now have just lost loved ones who they've cared for and who who have meant a great deal to them some are in the process of losing loved ones right now you know i i know that for some of the people of our older generation and even younger generation that there's 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 some things that they used to be able to do and the body can't quite do what it used to be able to do or the mind's not quite as sharp and that's a frustrating thing really frustrating thing <laughs> there you go harry's like yes that's what i'm talking about Yeah, I mean, there's like, we all have it. There's different stuff. It might be debt. It might be relational stuff that we've gone through. Whatever it is, we're experiencing pain in different areas of our life. And if we're not experiencing it acutely right now, hang on a week or two, right? Because that's the way it works. Life is full of this stuff. It's full of it. And God tells us these wonderful promises in Scripture, these awesome promises. All things. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Here's another truth, is that each person in this room, there's a calling. There's a calling. God has a calling. Called according to His purpose. Remember in the first week we talked about He's the tailor who's weaving these robes of righteousness for us, but He's weaving them in a bigger story and in a bigger picture of His plan of redemption. And that he is doing all this amazing stuff and in the middle of it, he's weaving our lives together as well. And he's doing something special in our lives. There's specifics about our lives and how it affects the rest of it. But there's this thing inside of us that has to be able to trust and say, my little life is important to him and he has a calling on me. We are called according to his purpose. We are part of the bigger plan of what he's doing. And those of us who are called, And those of us who love him can take it to the bank that all these difficult things that we're facing in our life right now, that he has a plan, that he's a tailor, that he's working it all out for some grander purpose that we don't see or understand or know right now, but we're going to trust him. We're going to trust and hang in there so dad's tongue is between his lips and he's picking out splinters or he's weaving the ball glove or whatever. And instead of me getting frustrated and giving up and pulling my foot away or taking my glove, I'm going to trust him that something's working out here and I'm going to keep sticking with him. The story of Joseph gets deep into this. And I'm so excited about where we're at in the story of Joseph right now. It's awesome. This part of the story, it gets pretty intense and and it's, it's really cool. Um, so we're going to get into it, but let's, let's have a word of prayer and just ask God to be with us in this message. God, we ask right now that as, as, uh, as I communicate with these guys and as they listen, that really what would be happening is that all of us would be listening to the word of God and that your spirit would be communicating with us and we would hear clearly what it is that you have to say today. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Normally I have you stand during the, the reading of the scripture that we're doing, but I'm going to be, um, use pepper in the scripture all the way through the whole time today um, instead of doing one straight reading through. So we're not going to do that. But I do uh, ask that if you have your scriptures with you to turn to chapter 37 of Genesis. Um, and we're going to be picking up in verse 12. Now, before we pick up in verse 12, we stopped at verse 11 last week. And I just want to give you a little recap. I mean, last week was Josh uh, spoke, uh, Hostetter spoke, and um, he, he was talking about when our families are messed up. And I know that none of us have any, anything messed up about any of our families, so it was really not applicable to us. But, uh, you know, th- the funny thing is, no matter how awesome our family is, we all have baggage, don't we? I mean, no family's perfect. Everybody has difficulties. Really, it's just it's different angles and different degrees of messed up. We're all messed up. Our families are all messed up. It's different degrees and different angles of messed up. But what we're shown in those first 11 verses is that no matter what the situation is, that God has an ability to redeem it. And as a matter of fact, the more messed up it gets, the more you get to see God's redemption happen. You know, we want it to be as good as possible. But when things get really messed up, then you get to see these like spectacular stories of God's redemption too, if we'll submit ourselves to him. And that's kind of how, uh, how the whole thing transpires when it comes to a messed up family. And I don't know if you remember the story of Queen Esther in the scriptures. It was a terrible story how Haman is the second, second in command to King Xerxes there and he... He comes up to him and says to the king, like, he manipulates him and gets it, gets it to the place where the king signs off on all the Jews being exterminated. They're going to kill all the Jews. It's like a Hitler thing. You know, they're, they're just going to annihilate all of them. And Esther, his queen, is a Jew. And he doesn't even know it. You know, he doesn't... They, they, that's how little this... That's how bad relationships were back then, you know. Um, and, uh, but finally, like, she comes in front of the king and risks her life and, and exposes this evil plot about, you know, the extermination of the Jews. And when the king realizes that Haman had pulled the fast one on him, he all of a sudden gets furious. But what he says he can't do is he can't repeal the, the negative thing that he's already put in motion. He's like, I can't stop it. I put my seal on it, and, and, and that decree is going to go out. I can't back out on my word now, then it undermines my authority. But what I can do is I can put another, an- another decree out there that they can pick up arms and that anyone who's not fighting against them fights for them and defends themselves, and it diffuses the whole thing. And he, and he just goes right over top of it with this other decree. And that's how it happens with our families. See, we have all sorts of generational baggage in our families cyclical problems, you know, that problems with dad that now I have and all sort of, you know, all these stuff that's in our families that's there and we can't just get rid of it. You can't just pull it out. Sin and, and garbage, it has its effects and it will take its toll. But the truth is, is that God is bigger than all of that and he can still plant seeds in there of redemption that go beyond all of that and that take all the the, the nasty stuff in our lives and it goes, it goes bigger and it takes all of that and, and makes a way of turning all things into God's working if we'll trust Him. If we'll trust Him. That's what's happening in this whole scene with Joseph is that the family's messed up. And there's all sorts of things going on and yet God is doing something and we're going to see just what He's doing. Okay, so that's, what's, that's where we were at. Joseph, um, you know, the Jacob dad has been... Uh, favoring Joseph, made him this special coat, and Joseph's been narking on his brothers, and uh, now there's like all sorts of issues going on, and then to top it all off, Joseph had these special dreams, and he thinks they're all going to bow down to him, and the brothers are like, we hate this guy, you know, and it's like, it's full on war in the home. That's where it's at. Okay, now, verse 12 is where it picks up. Now, his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brother... Wait a minute. Israel, by the way. Who is Israel? Anybody know who Israel is? Jacob. Jacob. Jacob's name gets changed to Israel. And so remember at the beginning of this whole thing, we said... In the, at the beginning of chapter 37, it doesn't say this is the story of Joseph. It says this is the story of Jacob. Because again, this is about Jacob's family and what's happening. It's about the whole family situation. It's even a national situation. It's about the birth of a family, the birth of a nation. And Jacob, who's the, the patriarch in the situation here, his name gets changed to Israel because what God is birthing is now the nation of Israel. And so anyway, um, that's just to give you a little perspective of that name if you haven't, didn't know where it was coming from. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing in the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off to the valley of Hebron. Now I want to stop there for a second and think about this. Why does Joseph, or why does Jacob send Joseph out to check on his brothers? Maybe partially because he doesn't trust them. Maybe partially because he's concerned about the sheep. But, you know, I, I really like to think that there's also a decent possibility here that he actually cares about the other brothers. You know, that they're out wandering around. And yes, he's shown favoritism. But what we find as the story goes on is anytime anything happens to any one of his boys, he falls apart. He loves his family deeply. He loves all of his boys. He loves one way more than he loves the rest. And that's not cool at all. It's terrible. But the truth is, is that he still loves the rest of the boys. And you know, these guys, it's interesting because when you look at this situation, it's, if you put yourself in the brother's shoes, it's easy to feel the, the angst and the pain of watching this other brother get loved more than me. But the truth is, is that they still have a dad who cares about them and who loves them. And there's always a silver lining. The scriptures tell us that those who are pure, all things are pure. And we have an ability to see the best in a situation. These guys were unable to see that they had a dad who still cared about them. Granted, it wasn't all good. Granted, it wasn't all perfect. And none of us are and none of our parents are. But there's still something to be found of goodness in all of our situations. And if we're looking to God and if we're trying to find the goodness, we can actually find it. And you see, even here, when the whole story is about the injustice of of the inequities, I'm going to skip that word, inequality between the one, brother's, the one brother and the other brothers, then uh, I need Josh around for those big words. And um, even though there's a difference between the way they're loved, they still could very easily find goodness if they looked for it. And, and, and God would be, uh, they'd be able to, to thank God and praise God for what's going on. So anyway, um, when Joseph arrived at Shechem, uh, in verse 15, a man found him wandering around the fields, and asked him, what are you looking for? I find that's an interesting question. I mean, there's the, the no-brainer question. What are you looking for? Here's some guy wandering around what he's looking for. But I think there's some metaphor going on here. Because, you know, what is Joseph looking for? Because we, we hear about Jacob and his desire for his son. And we hear about the Joseph, or Joseph's brothers and what they want. They want the love of their father. But what does Joseph want in this whole situation? What's his perspective? Did he ask to be the miracle child who came from the womb of a barren woman? Did he ask to be especially loved by his father? Did he ask for the special coat? Did he ask for all of this? No. His brothers would say he's asking for a beating. But he didn't ask for really anything. When you look at the story, it doesn't tell us that he did. I mean, he did narc on them at one point. That didn't help matters out. And he told them the dreams, but we don't even know how, they, how that transpired. You know, all we really know is that his dad shows him favoritism that he didn't ask for, and his brothers hate him, and he didn't necessarily ask for that either. So now you have this guy who's sitting there who, yeah, okay, he gets the special treatment from dad, but imagine what it's like to be Joseph when you're out in the field hanging out with the brothers or whatever, and they all hate you. That's not a good situation to be in. It doesn't feel good. And so when this guy's asking, like, what are you looking for? And he's about to respond, brothers. I mean, he's trying to obey dad. But if you're being sent on this trip as Joseph to go see your brothers, what kind of emotions are you experiencing knowing that you're going to see, you're going to another land to see your brothers? I mean, there's a few different emotions you might experience. First of all, fear, right? Anxiety. I don't know how this is going to go. I'm not really sure how this is going to go when I go and visit my brothers who hate me. Second is there might be a sense of hope and anticipation. Now that they're away from dad, and they don't have, you know, dad's not giving me the special treatment and everything, and dad's not breathing down my neck anymore, maybe I can be one of the boys and we can start to build a bridge here, and something can work out. And my guess is, is that on one hand there's fear, but on the other hand there's also hope, that maybe they, he can just be one of the guys, and, and he can integrate instead of being a miracle boy. Verse 16, he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. So far, everything's going according to plan. Dad's got some concern for the guys. He wants Joseph to go check on them. And by the way, you start seeing the parallels in Joseph's life with Jesus' life all the way back here. You remember, the most? what's the most famous verse in the Bible? Watch a football game. John 3.16. Okay. And so 3.16... For God so loved the world that he gave his only he sent his son from himself to go check on all the brothers and sisters and to take care of them. And from the beginning of this story, you start seeing these parallels in Joseph's life where he's like a little microcosm of Jesus. Obviously, he's not perfect. Obviously, he's not the son of God. But there's these little pictures that you start seeing of parallels with his life with Jesus. One is that here he's the beloved son who's being sent to see the, the brothers and he's being sent out and everything seems to be going according to plan. He's being sent to the brothers. The brothers should welcome him and you know everything should go great. And, uh, and maybe he's going to be able to rekindle uh, some sort of bond with his brothers or whatever, that doesn't happen. Verse 18, but they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Another parallel with the story of Jesus. Before he even really reaches them, they've already plotted in their hearts to kill him. See, this is what happens. This is where it gets terrible. You know how if you're driving down 422 or 76. The, the roads to drive down if you want to experience this. And, y- y- I, you know, I, can, I would definitely put my money on the fact that if you hopped in the car any time in rush hour, but, you know, any day of the week, and drove down to the city and back on those two roads, on the way down and on the way back, I would put a lot, if I was a betting man, would wager a lot of money on the fact that you cannot make it down to Philly and back without somebody doing something rude to you on the road. Okay. There is the chances are so minimal. I mean, that's a sure bet. You know, that's a good bet. And in those moments, I don't know where you guys are at and what your disposition is, but I'm a, I got Irish in my blood, you know? And, uh, and when that stuff happens, man, just ask Nate, Nate, who grew up in high school with me, like he used to drive in the car with me and he used to be like, Tim. Calm down, dude, you know, and he, he used to be like get it under and he used to be all afraid that I'd you know Like lose it and I, that, there's this internal switch that just oh, you know I get frustrated and in the moment in the heat a passionate moment when injustice happens We can do things that we will regret and that we wish we hadn't done But the worst things in life don't happen in a passionate moment The most evil things don't happen in a passionate moment of, of reaction The most evil things happen after something has happened. And we go and we lay on our beds and we stew about it at night. Or when the boss makes me do something that's totally not okay, or he calls me out in front of my coworkers, and I get back to my work, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking about it, and it's just driving me nuts. And in that moment, my heart starts to change, and my mind starts to move, and it goes places it shouldn't. And I have questions. And the questions are, will I turn to God in this moment and process appropriately? Or will I begin to take matters into my own hands and my mind and let my mind and my heart go wherever it wants to in response? I may not ever plan on acting inappropriately, but will I allow my heart and my mind to go to inappropriate spots? See, this is what happens with these guys. When they saw him in the distance, before he even got there, they plotted to kill him. It wasn't a passionate, momentary thing. They had been stewing on the injustice of this family situation. And they had let the cancer of sin eat their brain. And they just decided, you know what? I can't stand this punk. One of these days, he's going to get what's coming down. One of these days, he's going to get it. Where's all this angst and anger come from? Listen to what they cite. Verse 19. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. The dreams. We know that the family situation, all that inequality and all that stuff, it drove him nuts and it set the stage for all the bad stuff. Like, we know that set the stage for it. But what they couldn't handle, the straw that broke the camel's back, was the dream. The dreams. The dreams said this. The dream said, We're gonna bow down to him. It's not bad enough that you're the miracle child and dad's always protecting you more than everybody else. It's not bad enough that he makes you the special robe. It's not bad enough that when we're sweating over here, working on the fields, you're in like some princess wearing your pretty coat doing nothing. That's not bad enough. Then you got to go and tell us you have these dreams where we're going to bow down and worship you. I'll tell you what, buddy. You wait till dad is not looking, and you watch what happens. And they've been planning it in their hearts and in their minds for years. And in this moment, they see an opportunity, and they're like, Finally, finally. That quarterback just blitzed right up through the middle and that linebacker or free safety is just waiting to slam him. He's been waiting for it for forever. They have been waiting in anticipation for the moment when they can drill this dude because they're so sick and tired of him and particularly these dreams, these stinking dreams. Yeah, dreams are supposed to mean so much. Really, did you have to rub our noses in it with the dreams? And so they say, they're going to stop the dreams from being fulfilled. There's one problem with this. Whose dreams are they? They're God's dreams. That's right. They're not Joseph's dreams. They're God's dreams. Joseph didn't want these or ask for these any more than he asked for the robe or the special treatment or anything. God gave them to him. Now, how he handled them, we don't know. It came out to his brothers, and who knows whether he was like some like, arrogant little... Brother, who like, you know, like said this stuff to him, or whether it was just like in the course of events it came out. We don't really know. But what we do know is that these guys can't handle it, and they said, We are not gonna let this thing be fulfilled. But the problem is, is they're setting themselves up directly against God. That's what's happened. Here's God's plan, here's what he said, this is gonna happen. We're not gonna let it happen. What's amazing is is so many times when God moves in our lives we can't tell that it's God. We can't see that it's God. Because God's trying to change something in us. And in order for Him to change it, He has to do something that's radically different than the way we would do things. And so that means that the trajectory of my life, the way I'm seeing, the paradigm I'm working off of is here. And then there's this thing that, that shoots out over here. And, and it's God breaking through. And yet I can't hear that right now. And I can't see that because I've got a plan. And that doesn't fit in. And see, this is what happens. I don't know if you remember like Peter and Jesus. Peter's like the great hero at this point of the story where he's just figured out that Jesus is the Messiah and he's all proud of himself because Jesus said, upon this rock I'm going to build my church. And he's all excited. And then the next thing that Jesus says is, I'm going to have to die on a cross and, and then rise again. And Peter says to Jesus, hey, shh, don't tell that. You're wrecking the morale. Like... That, that's not good. Like, we're headed this direction, Jesus. We're going to conquer the world. Don't go and start talking about you being killed. We're not going to let that happen to you. You know, we got you, Jesus. And in this moment, Peter has a plan for his life. And Jesus is his ticket to that plan, you know. And then Jesus comes and says this other thing. And it doesn't fit in the plan. And so he rebukes Jesus. Seriously? Really? You just rebuked Jesus. And so then Jesus tells him, get behind me, Satan. And he rebukes him harder. Because what happens is, is Jesus needs to break through because our minds can't understand. And they can't see. And we can't understand that the, the great tailor who's doing all this stuff in our lives. We don't get it. And so he has to do something that breaks the mold. And when he does, it's, we have a hard time receiving it because we can't see it as God. And these guys had this dream. These dreams came from God that were given to Joseph, but they can't see that they're from God. They can't see anything good in them because they're so frustrated about their lives that all they can see in this dream is that they're supposed to bow down to their brother, and they can't hear that right now. What's amazing about these dreams, when they, the, the dream, the first dream he has, is that there's all these uh, sheaths of, of uh, wheat and, and grain. And that there are these big stalks of wheat. And that his stalk is a little bit bigger and their stalks all bow down to him. But as the famine's coming, this is actually a promise from God that they will all be well fed and that there will be harvest for all of them. This this dream is not a curse to them. This dream is a blessing to them. In the same way the stars, stars in Scripture always are something that's good. It's a good thing you're all going to be stars in the sky. Now granted, your stars are going to bow down to his star. So you're all going to be, it's like you're all going to be kings. He's going to be the highest one of of, of all of you, but you're all going to be kings. But they can't hear that we're going to have abundant harvest and we're going to be kings. All they can hear is that we're going to have to bow down to him. And so they can't see the goodness. They can't see that God's in this thing and it's coming from him. They can't hear that right now because they're dead set against it. And God has to break it. He has to change it. But they can't receive it, so they set themselves up against God. And they say, we're not going to let these dreams come to fulfillment. Let's take them out. Now, this should be their first clue that this thing was of God. In order to stop it, they had to be ungodly in order to stop it. And this is the way it works. Sometimes when I'm with my boys, I could give them specific instructions. And the best times of obedience for them, the best times when things work, is when... They, they don't necessarily have to think through every detail their first reaction is okay I'll do what dad's telling me to do then their second reaction is I wonder why he's telling me to do that And he, they try to get in my mind, and that's a good thing What's dangerous is is when they first try to understand why I'm telling them what to do and then reinvent How to be obedient based on that now in in business like this is a good thing you want every person to like really get a hold of the mission And know the big picture so they're not just doing exactly what they're told they're actually working to fulfill the mission you want people to think that way you want that in a church too where we're not just doing our job we're also thinking about the mission and saying how do we make this thing work you want that but the problem is is that see god sometimes gives us specific instructions it's called the law and david says i delight in the law of the lord And he gives us these specific instructions. But sometimes we feel like, you know what? I'm going to fulfill the spirit of the law of God, but I'm going to do it this way, over here. And we don't obey exactly the way he tells us to in order to accomplish something else. That's what's going on with these guys. It's injustice. They feel the injustice of their situation. And so they're going to take matters into their own hands. They're going to take care of justice. Well, God put a justice meter in their heart. And we all feel when injustice isn't there. But when we have to violate God's law in order to make sure that justice is taken care of, we've just set ourselves up against God. Because he gave us a law, specific instructions. It's not just about accomplishing the spirit of it. Sometimes the very detail of how he told us to obey him is really, really important. And that's what happens here. They violate the details of it, you know. No big deal. We'll just kill our brother to make sure that things get set straight. And so uh, they they set themselves up against God, and they can't see that this is actually from God. So uh, here we go. We're picking up the story. Um, Verse nineteen, or no, verse twenty-one. When Reuben heard this, this is the oldest brother. Reuben, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. Now he sounds like the hero in this situation. Wait a few verses. So when Joseph came to his brother, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. Then it wasn't a great move for him to wear like that robe. When he was, you know, like he could have worn something else. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty, and there was no water in it. So Reuben is going to be this off to save the day. And uh, you know what, I'll just read the next. No, no, I won't. So he's going to be off to save the day. He says, don't kill him, throw him into this cistern. And so they throw him into the cistern. It's like an old well. There's no water in it. And basically they're leaving him here to, to rot and, and, you know, to starve to death, which it's really a nice thing that they had mercy on him. You know, and, and didn't kill him because now they're going to let him start the death. Isn't it funny how mercy works sometimes? When people have mercy for the wrong reasons, for ulterior motives, the mercy ends up worse than the actual offense. Have you ever had someone who's like doing something mean to you and then they try to appease it and make it not look as bad by throwing you a bone and it just adds insult to injury? You know what I mean? Like politicians are notorious for this type of thing um, because we all see it in a public fashion or, or a boss can do this. But anyway, when someone tries to show you mercy, but it's really not because they have mercy or compassion on you. It's only because they just don't want to feel that bad, and then it's it's worse. They're trying to, like, buy you off. Well, that's what happens here. You know, it's like their mercy ends up being worse than the offense. They could have just killed him, but now they're going to leave him to starve to death in a cistern, which is so much better. And so... uh, Then, in verse 25, as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites. They cared so much about Joseph that after they threw him in the cistern, and we find out later on that Joseph was like screaming this whole time. You find out in chapter 42 that it's a horrible, horrible event for Joseph and he's really freaking out the whole time and they don't listen to him. And they finally get him off of them and get him down in the pit where they're leaving him alone and then they sit down and have Subway together. You know, like they have a pizza together or whatever because that's how much they care about Joseph. And... Then they see the caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, Judah, by the way, is the exact same word as the New Testament, Judas. Important to note. Judah said to his brother, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? What will we gain If we kill our brother and cover up his blood. Joseph is going to gain a whole lot. (laughs) Uh, Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, this is the best line right here. After all, he is our brother. Our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. You can justify just about anything, can't you? Come out smelling like a rose. Okay, yeah, well, good, we didn't kill him. We just sold him to slavery in Egypt, you know? So we love our brother as we sit down and eat our food as he's being sold into into foreign slavery. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver. Judah sells his brother for 20 shekels of silver to those who would take his life, like Judas, sells Jesus for 30 shekels of silver, in order to take his life, you've got to account for inflation. Over the years from 20 to 30, Jesus is worth more than, than uh, Joseph, apparently. Uh, and you see the parallels all over the place between their lives. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't here. Where can I turn now? See, what we find out is that Reuben didn't actually care anymore about Joseph. He had personal agenda. When you read in the story in the broader context, you realize that Reuben has been in bad shape with his dad. He's offended his dad on some pretty high levels. And we won't get into the details of it. It's pretty nasty, though, what he did to betray his dad. And now he's the oldest brother, and he finds himself in deep trouble because he's going to be the one held responsible, and he's already in it with his dad. He doesn't care at all about his brother. He's just trying to find a way to keep himself from getting in trouble. And so they got, in verse 31, Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. It's exhausting trying to cover up your sins. It really is. I mean, the work, the amount of work that they have to go through. If you get caught in a sin that's kind of a secret sin, you know, where you're doing stuff and you're not letting people know what it is, it's exhausting trying to cover that up. It'll wear you out trying to, like, cover that up with people. And it'll suck all your energy and it'll take everything and then it messes up all the relationships around when you try to cover up sin. It's crazy. So now we're back to Jacob here in verse 33. He recognized it, the robe that is, and he said, It's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him. Imagine this, the sons who did this to him and know the whole time what's going on. Now they come to comfort their dad. But he refused to be comforted. No, he said, "In mourning will I go down to the grave to my son." So his father wept for him. We're going to stop there. And t- no, we're going to read the last verse. I keep changing my mind. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Okay, it's the end of the chapter. And what we find is is that through this whole event, God is working out his plan, right? He's the tailor. And so he has this plan where he needs to get these guys, he needs to get Joseph over to Egypt, because that's where the food's going to be, and that's how he's going to be able to save his brothers and save his dad, and he's going to be able to do all this stuff. But no one knows what's happening except God. He's the only one who knows what's happening. And so throughout this whole event, his brothers, his big, bad, take justice into my own hand brothers, stand up and say, we are not going to let those dreams be fulfilled. We're going to sell him to Egypt where the dreams are going to be fulfilled. And they become the very tool that God uses to fulfill the dreams that they said that they're standing against. And when they defy God, God laughs because he uses that defiance as his way of fulfilling the dream. That's how good of a tailor he is. He custom fits things in ways that blow our mind. And we think when we look at that moment, like I've heard people be tempted in this moment to say, well, the brothers didn't really have a choice then. They just just needed to do this. This was like them just doing what God was making them do. So you can't really hold them responsible. That's a bunch of junk. All this is right here is showing just how impressive God is. No matter how bad of a decision we make, he will still not only accomplish what he wants to accomplish, but he'll use our very mistake to make a mockery of it in order to show us how good he is. God is a chess player like none other, and no matter where we move the pieces, he will pin us in checkmate exactly where he decided. You can move your person wherever you want, but he's that good, he will adjust and make it happen. And the best is when we get to the spot where we just start to realize, you know what? He's on both sides of this board right now, and I'm going to start asking him where I should make the next move because it's going to be way cooler. I'm going to be on his team. I don't want to be the fool in this story who he had to show just how much more powerful he was than me. I want to be on his team and just be submitted to him and be like, whatever you want me to do, God, because you're the one in control here. You're the one running the show. You're the one who's going to make this happen. I'm not going to get all bitter when life kicks me around and dad treats him this way and me this way. I'm not going to stew over here and act like I'm the one who has control over my life. I'm just going to stand in front of you and say, God, I have no idea why my dad loves him instead of me. I don't know why, but what I do know is is that when life kicks me around, you say that all things work together for good because you're a tailor up here who's doing something that I don't understand yet, but I'm going to trust you. And instead of getting mad and trying to kill my brother, I'm just going to believe you. And Jacob, Jacob, he didn't get the memo from his grandfather. Because see what happened with his grandfather, Abraham, is his grandfather, Abraham, was 100 years old when he finds out that he's going to have this baby. Him and his wife are there, and they're in their hundreds now. And they find out they're having this baby, this miraculous child And then God tells him to put it up on an altar and sacrifice the baby. How messed up is that? He's not a baby anymore. He's a son. And he puts him up on the altar and he takes out the knife. And this is what he says. He says, even if I have to kill this guy in obedience to God, talk about following him in the details. Even if I have to kill this guy, surely God will raise him from the dead because he promised me that this son is going to be the promised one. So I'm going to hold on to his word, and I will follow God, and I won't disobey him, and I won't take matters into my own hands in order to fulfill my plan. I'm just going to be obedient, but I believe that no matter what, he's going to do what he said he's going to do with this child. And he raises, and the angel grabs his hand and says, I know now that nothing will stand in the way. That you will obey me. That was Jacob's granddad and his dad on the altar. But he didn't get the memo because when his sons come back and have the ripped up robe, he says, Surely just the way his grandfather said, surely. But instead of saying, surely God will find a way, he says, surely my son was torn to pieces by a ferocious animal. And they try to comfort him, and they try to say it's okay. And, they try to, and he says, get away from me. I'm choosing despair with my life. I will not have joy. I will go down to the grave despairing. Have you ever known someone who's defined by past pain? Who can't get over the loss of that loved one? something has happened in their life who's scarred them and and, and they just, their whole life is a reaction now to that moment or becoming a victim and and in despair and they just can't get past it. Man, I've known guys who have done this with high school basketball games or football games who it's like their whole life is still about, you know, my life would have been so cool if in that moment the coach had actually just put me in, I would have hit that shot, you know? And it's like their life would have been different or something. Come on. God is a tailor and he's at work. And we've got to take him at his word and believe him. This boy was born miraculously of a barren woman and he had dreams that said that his brothers and even his mom and his dad would bow down to him. And his dad knew all of this. And then he saw this robe and he had no faith at all. He just bought his son's lies, hook, line, and sinker, and never trusted God. And because of that he chose despair and his life was horrible. There's one other guy in the story, and it's Joseph. And Joseph we don't get to hear a whole lot of in this situation. As a matter of fact, all the stories are about everyone but Joseph. He's, the whole, he's a bystander in this whole thing. He's the v- true victim. He's the one getting beat around. But what we know about Joseph is this. Is that he ends up at Potiphar's house, and he works his tail off and becomes respected as an amazing worker and gets placed in the prime spot. Who in this story has sinned and who has been treated unfairly? Jacob has sinned. The brothers have sinned. I don't know if Joseph has sinned or not, but we do know that he's been the true victim, the one treated unfairly. And yet when he gets to Egypt, he lowers his head and he gets the job done. He got knocked down, but he gets up again and he gives time for God to finish his work. And this isn't the end of it. His story just keeps getting worse. But he hangs in there, and he's resilient. And he says, no matter what the circumstances are of my life, God gave me these dreams for a reason. And I believe that he is working out his plan for me. It takes resilience and patience to allow the master tailor to do his work. Whatever the situation is right now, if it's grief, if it's guilt and shame from something of the past, if it's the broken relationship, if it's the the degeneration of the physical body, whatever it is, God is working something in your life. And it may not feel like God any more than Joseph's dream felt like God to his brothers, or any more than his brothers beating him up felt like God to him. But God is working something through the circumstances of our lives. And we have a choice as to how to respond. We can choose to take matters into our own hands, to get all worked up, to get angry, to get frustrated, to choose despair and depression. Or we can do the hard, difficult work of believing Him. Choosing to believe. Having hope. Getting back up and saying, God's at work. I'm going to lower my head. I'm going to keep going forward. Chin up. Let's go. God has good things in store for each of us. He has good things in store for our church. Whatever those circumstances are right now, He wants to use them. They're not to hurt us. He's going to use them. Let's submit ourselves to Him. Join me in prayer.